I am Dana of the Navajo Nation and Mayan. I invite you to listen to Ancestral Contact every Monday, 10.30 to 11.30 on KPFK. Ancestral Contact KPFK. Listening to KPFK FM ninety point seven radio.
Thank you.
my car broke down This is quite unfortunate If that old junker in your driveway is a lost cause, get rid of it and help KPFK out in the process. It's as simple as calling 877-KPFK-AUTO and asking the operator to assist you in arranging for a pickup. We'll tow it away and we'll mail you all the necessary paperwork for writing it off of your taxes. Call us now at 877-KPFK-AUTO. Oh no, my car broke down. That's so terrible. That's quite unfortunate. My stupid car doesn't work anymore. Hi, this is Joni Mitchell, and you are listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles and 98.7 FM Santa Barbara. Help me, I think I'm falling in love again. The Bradcast. Experts have said that the case has little chance of success at the Supreme Court, much like the numerous other GOP election lawsuits that are pending in battleground states. But then again, those experts, they are just guessing. They are hoping. With your host, Brad Friedman, and producer, Desi Doyen. There's enough going on right now. There are enough X factors still remaining that that's one I'd rather not contemplate. Correct. You are, as usual, correct, Desi Doyen. Tune in to the broadcast every Monday at 3 p.m. right here on KPFK. KPFK, your progressive media outlet, is listener-supported commercial-free radio. But did you know you don't have to wait for the station fund drives to support your favorite radio station? You can donate online at any time. Visit kpfk.org. That's kpfk.org. And we thank you for your support. This is Nick, host of Bike Talk Online at KPFK since 2008. I used to have a car, but you don't need a car to get around in LA. And we talk about that every episode. Just do it! I donated my car to KPFK called 877-KPFK-AUTO. They took it away. Tax deduction. Anyone can have their car taken away. Cars, boats, motorcycles, any fossil fuel vehicle. Leaf blowers, not a vehicle. Call 877-KPFK-AUTO, donate your car to KPFK, help the station, and commute by bike. There's no traffic on a bike.
We will now be joining Beneath the Surface. The program is already in progress. Welcome to Beneath the Surface. I'm Susie Wiseman, wishing you all a good holiday season. On today's program, we talk to Gabriel Hetland, who has just published his study of populist experiments in Venezuela and Bolivia that showed the complexity of implementing participatory democracy at the grassroots level. His book, Democracy on the Ground, examines the possibilities, limits, and concrete cases of participatory democracy, including participatory budgeting at the local level during the high point of Latin America's left turn in the 2010s. His study immediately begs the question, what kind of democracy? It's a pertinent question here in the United States where democracy is under threat by one of our two major parties. We get Gabriel Hetland's views when our program returns in just a moment. We're also going to ask for your support to keep this program and this station on the air. Welcome to Beneath the Surface. I'm Susie Wiseman. And today we're going to talk to Gabriel Hetland. He's written a book called Democracy on the Ground, which immediately begs the question, what kind of democracy? Here in the United States, democracy is under threat. In fact, it's the key question today. And it's under threat by one of our two main parties, namely the Trumpist Republicans. But here we're fighting to maintain a very flawed democracy, which we're finding out is still better than no democracy. Uh, but for the left, the fight is defined as one for complete democracy or a genuine democracy for a system in which the vast majority have meaningful participation in the decisions which affect our lives much more than simply voting every two or four years. Gabriel Hetland spent nearly two years in both Venezuela and Bolivia doing a study of two populist experiments that show the complexity of implementing democracy on the grassroots level. And he was surprised by what he found. We're going to get his views, but let me welcome you to the show, Gabriel. Thank you, Susie. So great to be here. Yeah, really great. So Gabriel is an associate professor of Latin American, Caribbean and Latino Latina studies at SUNY Albany. And he writes about democracy, politics and social movements in Latin America. This book, Democracy on the Ground, is published by Columbia University Book and just came out this year. Available everywhere you buy books, I assume. So <laughs> welcome to the show. This is a pretty valuable study. And it shows, I guess, what's possible, um, but it also shows what the limits are. So I think the best way to start is not with your study, but, but looking, we'll get to that. But just looking right now, we had a very good example this weekend in Chile where, you know, you had the second plebiscite on a proposed constitution in two years. Both were defeated. Um, the first, because it was too, let's say, all the different things it was for the population. It was too radical, too diverse, too democratic, too multicultural or multinational or plurinational, something that, you know, didn't go over well with Chilean nationalism. And the second one was to the right of the Pinochet constitution that was imposed in 1980. So that was also defeated. So now the struggle in Chile or the struggle to get a new constitution is all but done. Um, so let, let's begin with that. I know you're a Latin Americanist, so you can talk a little bit about that, and then we'll circle back to your two examples. How do you see what happened in Chile? Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole sort of last couple of years have been a bit disappointing and sad. You had the amazing sort of estallido social or social uprising in 2019 and then Boric's election after that. And that was, you know, hopeful. And it, you know, Boric may not be the most radical left of the sort of leftists within Chile, within Latin America, but he's, you know, he's a genuine leftist. He was involved in and promoting this very radical, as you said, very far left constitution. And clearly, you know, the one that didn't pass a year ago was perceived as sort of being out of step with voters within Chile. I haven't looked closely, but some of the analysis I 
looked at suggested that maybe if they did more mobilizing, more educating, more sort of talking to people on the ground. But I'll, I would let, you know, Chilean experts really analyze why it failed. And then to me, it's mind boggling that anyone would try to promote a constitution to the right of Pinochet's constitution and expect it to succeed. I mean, I think what you're seeing is that, you know, Chileans may not want uh, radical left, far left constitution, although I don't know, the jury may be out if that was under different circumstances or better promoted or this, that and the other, but they clearly don't want a far right uh, constitution either. And so the latest I've heard is that they're just going to shelve this, they're going to move on to some other right. sort of reforms and try to get beyond it. That, you know, from the outside seems like a sensible thing to do. It seems like just sort of putting it aside for a while, probably is the way to go. But it, it does seem like a missed opportunity you know and if you compare it to some of the cases that i do study um venezuela bolivia they passed very radical leftist constitutions successfully with massive majorities so it, it may speak to the national differences but it also may speak to the sort of global difference that unfortunately we're in more of a right-wing moment now even within latin america than we were you know 15 20 years ago when venezuela and bolivia were sort of at the height of their left turn so um well, different things happening yeah, I think we should, you know, just to sort of close out the discussion on Chile, because it's it's really important and one can never underestimate what happened during the pandemic, because there was, you know, this gigantic social movement that erupted in 2019 that was literally, you know, expressed the biggest hope, I think, in the world. Uh, it was quite spontaneous and led to um, this discussion for a new constitution. And as you said, Gabriel, they didn't do enough outreach to the population. The right dominated the media and raised all kinds of fears. But one of the things that has happened followed from the time that they proposed the Constitution and sat down to write it. You know, one was the pandemic and the other was a pretty dire economic crisis. You know, there was there's definitely a crisis of political representation and a real precarity to popular life. And so the Chilean economy was very weak at this time. And so the other thing that happened, which is pretty crazy, is that they had an influx of immigration that they'd never had before. Chile, you have to, you know, was cut off by the Andes and the sea. And it was, you know, apart from a very large section of indigenous people, it's pretty homogeneous. And then you got thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Venezuelans coming in, fleeing Maduro and the economic crisis there. And just, you know, in terms of temperament and character, Venezuelans are so different than Chileans. They're gregarious and they're outgoing and Chileans are reserved. And so this was, you know, crisis in a way in Chile. And then you also got a lot of Haitian immigrants. And so all of a sudden you have different people in a very insular society and the right pounced on that too. So I think that both of those things are partially explanatory for the rightward shift, but thankfully, and we'll end in this part, it was trounced. The caste ultra-right constitution uh, was trounced in the plebiscite by more than 10 points. I'll do another show on that, but I think we could say that this is the close of that cycle of revolt, and now we're going to move on to something new as, as yet un unknown. But I think just that little you know, reference to the effect that's what of what has happened in Venezuela on politics elsewhere in Latin America is a good way to kind of circle back to go to Venezuela first in your experiment, because since you've done this work, Venezuela has been on a continuing downward spiral. So let's, I, I, you know, I guess maybe just give you the chance to sort of introduce what you did there in your two years and, and what you saw. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the book um, highlights a much more positive moment in Venezuela. And I often say in talks and on shows that it's almost hard to believe, you know, what I'm talking about in the book, because it's so distant, sadly, from what's happening now, but it really did happen. And it really was pretty amazing. So I'll, you know, talk a little bit about that. So the, the book is a study of four cities, in, two in Venezuela, two in Bolivia. And it's a comparison of participatory democratic reform in those cities. And as you talked about, participatory democracy is a really different form of democracy. It's a 
sort of real form of democracy. It harkens back to ideas of direct democracy in ancient Athens. Um, and it's about ordinary people really exercising control over decisions that affect their lives. And so that's what I wanted to study in these four cities, but I did it with a little bit of a twist, looking at cities that were governed by left and right-wing parties in Venezuela and Bolivia. And I went into it, you know, with a sort of common sense left thinking and a scholarly thinking as well that I'm of course going to find more success in the two left run cities and much less success or just outright failure in terms of participation in the two right run cities. But what I found was actually, you know, very interesting and different. It was success in the left and right run city in mm. Venezuela and failure in the left and right run city in Bolivia. So I spent a lot of time in my fieldwork trying to document that, trying to sort of describe what was happening. And then, you know, years and years analyzing it, thinking about it, trying to explain it. And the explanation that I've come up with is a combination of national and local politics in the two countries and in the four cities. And in a nutshell, I argue that in Venezuela, Hugo Chavez and the Chavez regime that he oversaw achieved a form of leftist hegemony, specifically a left populist hegemony, so hegemony in a Gramscian sense, where they exercised moral and intellectual leadership and real political leadership over society as a whole, not forever, but for a number of years. And they succeeded in pulling the right pretty far to the left. And so in mm -hmm. particular cities, including the city of Sucre, so this municipality in Caracas that I studied, which was governed by a center-right party, they governed sort of like Lula. I mean, they actually looked to Lula. They said Lula is our model in some ways. And they did participatory budgeting and they did it, you know, really robustly. I mean, they devoted up to $35 million a year. They had a thousand uh, meetings a year, tens, you know, dozens of officials, thousands of citizens going out to these meetings, citizens having, you know, a significant amount of control over the budgetary process. And so I argue that this sort of leftist hegemony on the national level pulled the right with them. And I, I talk about uh, sort of parallel to Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair in the book. Um, you know, Margaret Thatcher was at I think in 2002, what her greatest accomplishment was. And she said, Tony Blair, uh, you know, we forced our opponents to change their minds. And so I argue that something similar happened in Venezuela, that Chavez, you know, forced his opponents to change their mind, forced them to play on the left's terrain for a number of years. And there was particular material conditions and political conditions and even sort of regional and geopolitical conditions that fostered that, that we can get into. But it had these really interesting effects. And Bolivia was quite different. So mm -hmm. Bolivia elected Evo Morales, a social movement leader, the first indigenous president in a profoundly racist country, you know, basically dealing with apartheid-like conditions for, you know, centuries. Right. He's elected in 2005 following a revolutionary crisis lasting about five years. And he brings immense hopes to Bolivians. Some of those hopes were fulfilled and there was a new constitution in 2009 successfully implemented. It did promote plurinational identity, 36 languages recognized, all sorts of advances and you know successful reforms but in terms of participation surprisingly unsuccessful in the two cities that i looked at one of them is el alto which was governed by an affiliate of the mosque by a mosque mayor during the time i was doing my fieldwork mosque is the movement to socialism Evo morales's party and then the other one was santa cruz in the eastern lowlands which was a right-wing governed city um, and both of the cities surprisingly were similar in failing to implement participatory reform and so I argue that a key reason, not the only, but a key reason for that is that under Morales, Bolivia's national government took a passive revolutionary route. And that's another Gramscian concept that basically highlights the demobilization of previously activated popular subjects. So um, under Morales, there was this incredible social ferment, social organization, social mobilization. Once he got into office, he sort of Use that for a number of years, but then from around 2009, 2010 onwards, really demobilized popular movements, engaged in some repression of popular movements, nothing like previous governments or subsequent ones, I should say, but still surprising. Um, and the effect at the local level in some in the two cities that I studied was failure of participation. The governments were, you know, really trying to organize social control rather than well, controlling society rather than letting society control the government. So it was really unexpected and different. Um, so those national level differences sort of set the framework. And then the book is really exploring with deep ethnography what is actually happening in these cities. And I didn't even really talk about the left Venezuelan city, which had a 
profoundly successful participatory experiment that touched, you know, moved in the direction of a sort of democratic socialism at the local level. So I think the the book gets into a lot, but this is sort of, you know, the overall explanation in a nutshell. Great. So there's a couple things that I, I mean, I want to get into the sort of giant question about the limits of a democracy under capitalism, um, even in a left social democratic form. Looking at what you found in these forms, because you're right that it was quite different, Venezuela and uh, Bolivia, but they had certain things in common as well with charismatic leaders, as you showed. And Venezuela, of course, was able to advance under Chavez because oil flowed freely and there were high oil revenues. So, but as you say, and of course, as we all know, it was a top-down left populist government, uh, but there were these real examples of participatory democracy. And I remember I went to a conference and I met uh, a guy who was the Bolivarian consul in San Francisco. He was a far-left guy and I spent a lot of time and later went to see him and we talked a lot about what was going in going on in Venezuela, and he he talked about what was about it in terms of limits of human resources. You know, he said Chavez was very open to profoundly democratic efforts, but it was difficult to get people uh, mobilized, educated, you know, desiring to participate at that level. Now that was earlier on, so I was really kind of interested in your examples where there were things like participatory budgeting. So, you know, and that is something where the population, as you say, is able to decide how to allocate money that's, you know, given to the locality. So they make big investment decisions. That would mean what, like opening schools, making sure there's streetlights, all kinds of things that we might see mundane, but that we don't ever get to participate in this country. So I guess I'm I'm sort of wanting you to describe a little bit more how that participatory budgeting came about and what it really entailed. Yeah, absolutely. And to sort of, you know, set the context with what the, you know, council in, in California and San Francisco uh, was sort of talking about, I think under Chavez, it was a lot of contradictions. So you did have this sort of top-down character to the Bolivarian revolution, the Bolivarian process, but there was a lot of bottom-up initiative Chavez talked about participatory democracy, the 1999 constitution, which was pretty radical and leftist, was successfully approved, embraced explicitly participatory and protagonistic democracy. There was lots of laws that actually tried to concretize that, one of which was for participatory budgeting. In practice, in lots of Venezuelan cities, including both cities that I look at in the book, uh, under Chavista sort of mayors and city councils, those experiments were thwarted to some extent. And there was a lot of sort of efforts to implement participation, but at the same time, sort of top down control. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, they burst outside of the bounds of that. And the two cases I'm looking at, that was the case, both of them, interestingly, were opposition uh, mayors, one from the left, one from the right, but they were utilizing the rhetoric, the institutional tools, and the hopes of Chavismo, and they did so fairly successfully. This is, you know, one of the things I get into is just sort of looking at how did this happen? What did it look like on the ground? And it, it looks like real democracy. I mean, it looks like people really exercising control over their own lives. Torres, which is the most successful of the four cases, this one's in Venezuela, had an amazing participatory budget. It covered 100% of investment budget decisions, which are decisions about new spending. Um, there were vigorous debates about you know, should we fund a tractor that could also be an ambulance and could take children to school in the rain? Um, and there'd be people saying no, because, you know, if the wheels break, we won't have funds to do that. So we have to have an investment that can be sustainable. And other people would say, well, we need streetlights because it's a women's safety issue. And it's a, you know, mm -hmm. an issue. And they'd say, well, there's blackouts because of our electricity crisis, which has to do with climate change, which has to do with oil, which has to do with Venezuela's whole trajectory historically. So these amazing, rich discussions, but then very mundane, okay, well, we're going to fund the school instead, you know, and so there was all sorts of things. And that, you know, officials talked about that as citizens learning to govern themselves, learning how to disagree and live with the disagreement, learning how to lose votes and come back and win votes the next time. So it was, you know, discussion based, there'd be some, you know, voting of, representatives of communal councils and parish assemblies, so these different sort of decentralized forms of participatory democracy. And it wasn't always perfect. There was disagreements, but it worked really well. And it was, you know, as honestly felt magical. I mean, it felt to me sort of 
what I think of when I read Trotsky sometimes, you know, he talks about, you know, the idea of revolution is the masses taking control of their destiny. That's what I saw in Venezuela. And again, it wasn't perfect. There's all sorts of contradictions. It was based on these historically high oil prices. It was based on, you know, this sort of flawed charismatic model, but it did actually work. And so let, so me, that- let me just come in right there, because sure. I, as I said, you know, just earlier that there's limits to what can be done under capitalism because you still have private ownership. But as you say in your book, and as we all know, there was a nationalization in uh, Venezuela and partial nationalization of hydrocarbons in Bolivia. But in, in Venezuela, it was deeper, right? And that meant that there were higher revenues going to the state and that allowed for public investment, presumably also larger budgets going to these localities that made, you know, impossible for them to even discuss the kinds of things that they were discussing. But so I guess I'm kind of interested again, on the limits of that, especially in Venezuela, because it seemed to me at the time, you know, that I mentioned I was talking to the the very radical far left uh, consul about the problems that just seemed in Venezuela so much hinged on the popularity of Chavez himself, a very charismatic figure. So the big question was, could the revolution outlive him? You know, what happens afterwards? And then, as you know, your book shows, he died in 2013. And then we get Maduro, who's just, you know, we'll go into that perhaps, maybe not, but it changed absolutely everything. So, so I guess the, the, I'm dancing around the question of you have an excellent sort of demonstration of a mobilized popular class, right? That is in these cities that you're talking about more in some and less in others taking part in the actual day-to-day governance. It's reading it, it's it's a little bit like, you know, the excitement that, you know, I certainly have when I studied the Soviets just after the revolution, but also just before the revolution too. I think that was even more profound. And then of course the defeat was even worse. But so I guess it's just like talking a little bit about how important it was. We also have in Bolivia a charismatic popular leader who becomes more corrupt. And then, you know, it moves into this coup. So did these participatory local experiments last beyond these leaders? And, you know, how much were they able to go even deeper into, you know, questions of how industries were operating in their area? Yeah. So, I mean, these are great questions. You're touching on so (laughs) many huge issues and the limits of sort of democracy under capitalism was clear. And, you know, these are places, the whole pink tide was, not a full-scale revolution. It was an electoral process that was highly incomplete, very partial, and you still have elites in place living there. They didn't all get killed. They didn't all flee. And there's consequences to that. I mean, some of the consequences might be more positive with pluralism continuing to exist in fragmentary form. Some of them were less positive where elites are, you know, really, really trying to drag down those processes. Um, And so those contradictions are playing out. And then, of course, you know, the nationalizations didn't get rid of capitalism. Um, They did sort of change the character of capitalism in some ways. You know, you had a lot of decommodification of uh, social services and electricity, which was maybe not done in the best way. I mean, I think there's lessons for thinking about left governance in general, and you got to pay the bills, you got to, you know, you got to sort of figure out how to uh, survive and have sustainability. The question of sort of political succession, I think, was not thought about a lot under Chavez. And that was something that people did occasionally whisper, hey, we should think about this. But those conversations were usually shut down. He was a larger than life figure, which means that when he died, he left a huge hole. And Maduro you know, I, I have a very negative view of him today. I'd say when Probably he got elected, is more so. <laughs> yeah, it, it could well be. Yes. Yeah. Waylands do as well today, but I think he was dealt a really tough hand. I mean, and shortly within a year of taking office, the opposition, you know, implemented these huge protests that were uh, violent in many instances, led to a lot of deaths. There was a crash in the oil price you know, about a year and a quarter after he had taken office. And so that was another major thing. U.S. sanctions started to um, bite under Obama and overcompliance with sanctions, no doubt, had an effect. And so and then there was all sorts of contradictions from the Chavez era that Chavez was sort of able to manage because he had support from the revolutionaries and the corruptees and the generals and the popular movements and all these. So he could sort of play them off each other. But 
uh, Manjoro had a much more fragile sort of situation. And so when there was economic contradictions having to do with currency and sort of major contradictions of the currency policy, which themselves date back to imperialist aggression, you know, supported by the U.S. in 2002 and 2003 against Chavez, but they never really dealt with those contradictions. Mm-hmm. All of that comes to a head under Maduro. And it does expose the limits. You know, Venezuela was still incredibly extractivist. Um, It was still based on this sort of charismatic model. Um, It was still very private ownership, you know, oriented. It was still capitalist in a in a profound sense. It it was also dependent on you know the fossil fuel industry. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) So if we're thinking about climate change, I mean, the contradictions just heighten up another level. So I think despite that, there was all sorts of popular energy that that was happening. There was all sorts of interesting participatory experiments, and they weren't able to sort of be sustained. And I'd say that, you know, two points come to mind as sort of closing out the Venezuelan case in a sense. One is the way that a lot of the contradictions were dealt with was through constructing parallel institutions, which was a short term and even medium term fix. So there was sort of, you know, if you encounter uh, difficulties in a ministry, you just set up a new ministry for popular power and you try to do it that way. And that might let you overcome the, the limits, but then those people opposing you are still there and they're still able to oppose other things and they're still able to sort of exert things. So not going after the bureaucratic sort of contradictions and resistance has a cost eventually. Mm-hmm. And I think that came to bear under Maduro particularly. And then second, I think that U.S. sanctions have to be the sort of key thing that we're talking about with the Venezuelan crisis today, that, you know, Maduro really screwed up in all sorts of ways. He has become incredibly repressive. There's credible U.N. reports of crimes against humanity and, you know, gruesome stuff. I've reviewed some books that will be coming out soon-ish about sort of horrible police practices, just killing young men of color in Caracas. And, you know, the worst stuff you see in the U.S. happening in Caracas and in Venezuela. So that that's true. But the broader context is just these horrific U.S. sanctions, which did start under Obama in kind of a gentle, if you will, fashion, and then really ratcheted up under Trump. And then Biden has actually eased them a little bit. So, you know, the next year might be kind of interesting, but um, setting aside the question of where Venezuela might go, the crisis that we're seeing now, you know, of eight or nine years of out-migration and hunger and poverty and just horrific living conditions is very, very much the U.S. responsibility. And U.S. officials were aware of that. I mean, Marco Rubio, uh, he didn't say we want to make the economy scream, but he, he tweeted at the time about how they were making Venezuelans suffer and they sort of knew that would happen. I think he tweeted some images of Darth Vader even um, almost laughing about the suffering the U.S. was imposing. So that was just obvious and clear and intentional. And it had an effect. I mean, Venezuela now is what you don't want to be. You know, I think Chile, you know, you talked about the migrants, but also there's a specter of Venezuela that is everywhere in Latin America and the U.S. You know, anything that is socialist is Venezuela. Anything that's leftist is Venezuela. Oh, you want compost? You're going to turn into Venezuela, which means economic disaster, political repression. So it's sort of an updating of the Cold War model in a way. Exactly. You know, and I would say one of the reasons that I like talking about my book is to push back against that and say, it wasn't just that. There was a lot more to this and we need to have a much fuller analysis of what happened in Venezuela um, because it was not just this sort of disaster that it looks like today. And the disaster itself is more complicated than it's made out to be. But beyond that, there was all these amazing things that happened. Yes, they were built on contradictions, but they also empowered people to a degree rarely seen in history. And that's important. And do any of those things survive? That's a great question. And one I can't fully answer because I haven't gotten down to Venezuela in a couple of years because of COVID and various you know, challenges. Some of them survived for quite a while. So Torres, my leftist sort of case in Venezuela, was going well. I was there in 2016. And at least a few years after that, the participatory budgeting was still going. It still had non-Chavistas participating. It was under tremendous strain, there was political strains, there was a loss of pluralism, there was major challenges relating to hyperinflation, but it was continuing and that's impressive. Even during the beginning of this massive, massive crisis, the right-wing Venezuelan case, which had this you know, surprisingly impressive participatory budget through 2013, did not really survive. And so that one, I think, did show the limits of 
when leftist hegemony crumbles, which happened after Chavez died, I think that nobody from at least 2014 onwards could say that Maduro was hegemonic in a Gramscian sense. I mean, from at least 2015, mm-hmm. 2016, he was ruling by force. Um, and it did, the, you know, the right turned to the right again. <laughs> they be, they came home, if you will, and they, they stopped behaving like Lula and started, you know, moving in a, Guaido direction, you know, one Guaido who proclaimed himself president and was a far right uh, leader within Venezuela. He became the emblem of the Venezuelan opposition by 2019. And this earlier moment was sort of effectively left and sort of discarded. And so sadly, that didn't last. And so I think that points to how do we think about, you know, the conditions. And I think that also points to the challenge of um, if you have leftist hegemony in one country, but you don't have it globally, then you know, if the conditions that led to leftist hegemony are gone, then it's not going to continue. And so, you know, capitalist hegemony or right-wing hegemony, you know, liberal democratic hegemony is much more robust because it is global. And, you know, what we saw in Venezuela was anti-systemic and, you know, pushing against that. And so it was inevitably more fragile and and it's still, of course, we're, I, I want to get on to Bolivia, but it begs the question, as I was reading it and thinking about, well, you know, this is made possible by certain unique circumstances, including the oil revenues, the populist leader, the, you know, largesse of the local budgets, at least in comparison to what was there before. But it begs the question about whether this is a model that could go on elsewhere. And, you know, let's say even in the U.S. at, at local levels. Um, but before Keep that in the back of your mind, because I want we we don't have a tremendous amount of time left. And I want to get into the Bolivian case, which everybody remembers. I think Cochabamba, at least, you know, and then there was that wonderful film that followed by um, Ila Uvia, also the rain, I think, which really just shows the worst of the neoliberal reforms that was privatizing water. you know, And then you've got these mass outbursts and mass, you know, revolts that led to Evo Morales becoming president. So take it up from there and describe what you saw and perhaps how you were surprised by what you saw. Definitely. So at the national level, you see a a classic crisis of hegemony, a crisis of representation from 2000 to 2005. The neoliberal model is just completely uh, opposed and rejected by the population and by very strong, very mobilized popular movements. And so that leads to the election of Evo Morales. But you still have, you know, a strong opposition to that. You have a sort of mestizo white elite, which had controlled Bolivian you know, national governments for decades, if not centuries in a certain sense. And they were pissed and they did not, they wanted their power back, but the demographics of Bolivia were against them. And so they threw everything they had at getting rid of Morales. They really opposed the constituent assembly. They fomented violence at the street level. They did all sorts of political maneuvers. They supported a major sort of right-wing civic uprising in 2008 that some refer to as a coup, although I'm not quite sure that label is justified, but it was a major uprising and they didn't succeed. So, you know, Morales survives all of that. He relies on the social movement base to do so. He mobilizes them selectively. And then he sort of gets political control from around 2009, 2010 onwards. And then unfortunately, he turns to the right. And you can see this to some extent, if you go way back to even before he became president in 2002, his party, the movement to socialism, and it earlier was called the sort of political instrument for the sovereignty of the people. So it has an earlier history that's fascinating as well. But under Morales, they continuously push things in a sort of electoral representative democratic direction from like 2002 onwards. And when he's in office, that dynamic continues as well. And so he's pushing more in a sort of moderate fashion. And you really see that after 2009, 2010, where he's making deals with the right wing elites who were sort of opposing him vociferously, people who are calling him for to be ousted by the military. He's lunching with them in 2013. He's cutting deals with right wing mayors in Santa Cruz and other places and squashing popular movements that Moss had supported to some extent at the local level before that. And so this sort of demobilizing of the popular forces um, just leaves a lot of popular movements, social movements, frustrated and hopeless. And, you know, in the city of Santa Cruz, you just see a sort of right wing government that is totally opposed to any real version of democracy. They're not Mm. explicitly against liberal democracy or representative democracy, but they're really against any form of, you know, people having power. And Moss, unfortunately, kind of joins with them. And they they support that from around 2013 on. And then strangely, or surprisingly, in El Alto, where the Moss is 
they control the mayor. They, they, you know, they have a mosque candidate as mayor and control city council from 2010 to 2015. A similar dynamic happens, and they're just trying to sort of get social movements under control. They have this fascinating phrase, you know, politicians in El Alto and, and local leaders told me about the thesis of the dictatorship of social organizations, where they think of social organizations as too powerful, and we need to get them to bring them to heel. This is from the left. This is the you know, the movement to socialism, government trying to sort of do that. So the national level changes filter down to the local level. But for all that, I will say that, you know, Morales does achieve a lot of really remarkable things. Um, Bolivia becomes a more inclusive, a more equal, uh, less racist society. Poverty rates go down, inequality goes down, economic growth is significant and sustained. The IMF loves Morales, which is actually a funny <laughs> yeah. thing, you know, from 2009 onwards, they're constantly saying, this is our guy, you know, he's doing all the things right, although he's not doing what they say. He's, that's a, I saw that in your book, I thought, exactly, because if he had done what they said, it would have contracted the economy. Exactly, yeah, he's doing heterodox policy, he's doing a lot of state spending, he's doing counter-cyclical sort of things, so, you know, he's a disappointment from my sort of research perspective in terms of participation, but in so many other ways, you know, there is a lot of success, but I do think that what I'm looking at speaks to the coup in 2019. Yeah, and one of the right. striking things about the coup is that there's very limited popular support. This is a three-week period of right-wing, you know, middle-class anti-Morales uprising, sort of protest in the streets. And there's not a lot of Moss supporters in the streets against that. And part of the reason for that is people talk about it as sort of the desgastamiento, the sort of, you know, exhaust, but also the demobilization and the sort of you know, soft repression and the co-optation of leaders and the move, moving away from the sort of mobilizing rhetoric, mobilizing sort of policies, um, that that's coming to play in 2019. And that allows the coup to succeed. Um, and then under the right wing government of Janine Añez, a far right, crazy, racist, and religious saying now the Bible's in the house or something like that. I remember and I remember I, I you know did a show with it with Linda Farthing and it was just unbelievable also because uh, Morales had become, you know, more autocratic and and somewhat corrupt. I was a little surprised about that. But as you say, even though there was not a lot of support, there was opposition to the coup. Oh yeah. But, I mean the But then the she implemented just horrific policies. Yeah. And that spurs a rearticulation of social mobilization, which forces an election, which was delayed at least two, if not three times by Anya saying COVID, 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 we can't have the election. And finally, they, there's just this sort of social explosion. And that leads to the finance minister, Luis Arce, getting elected um, in 2020, yeah, October 2020, um, and Anya is out of office. Although now there's this huge, sad crisis of MAS where Morales wants to run as the as the candidate for Moss in 2025. Arce also wants to run. So right now, the Moss is being totally torn apart from within. It, it's not looking good at the moment. And that could lead to, you know, the far right or the right taking over in Bolivia in 2025. I mean, if if this current sort of split between different leftists within Bolivia uh, continues and it splits the vote in 2025, that could really open the door to the right. So, you know, looking forward, Venezuela's trajectory is, you know, maybe more hopeful in a way with the easing of sanctions and there's a presidential election and there's, you know, it's not necessarily profoundly hopeful, but Bolivia's is pretty unhopeful at the moment. I mean, hopefully they'll resolve things and figure it out, but um, there's a lot of contradictions and a lot of those do go back to some of the dynamics that I look at in the book. I think also your book really shows the initial promise and then the absolute limits of these kind of left populist uh, leaders and governments because it isn't proliferated. It's quite different than in Chile, I would say, because there you do have this history of, of movements that exploded in 2019. And Boric, of course, comes from the student movement in an earlier period, 2011, I think it was. It's a very different society. But what we're seeing now post-pandemic and in this situation is it making it extremely difficult for left-leaning governments. But just in the final moments that we have here, I want to take it back to what your takeaway is and how you generalized what you saw and outside of Latin America, let's say, or here and elsewhere where people want more. I mean, this is the struggle in life, right? To have more control over your destiny. And 
given you know this very close look that you had at experiments you know how do you see it is it did it change your ideas do you think about you know demands for participatory budgeting uh, at local or state levels elsewhere let's hear yeah great questions i mean when i started the research on this i was uh, at uh, UC Berkeley, a graduate student in sociology, and I was actually doing a master's project on the Obama campaign of 2008. And so I had a brief moment where I thought, I wonder if I can compare Chavez, Morales, and Obama. And my advisor, Michael Burvoy, said, you're crazy. No way. You can't compare the empire and the imperialized countries. And so he was smart, and I didn't try to do that. But I do think that, you know, thinking about the Obama campaign, of all things, um, in 2008, you have to organize and mobilize the people. I think that that's what Chavez did that was really interesting and successful. And that was the sort of social political base for this leftist hegemony. There was tremendous levels of resources, but also popular organization. It was incentivized. Um, you could get money, you could get resources.